Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. 28 days to the election, and of course, some of the nuances here get pushed aside by the brute force of politics. Michael Waltz understands that. He is a Republican from Florida, the 6th Congressional District. This is from Jacksonville in the south of Jacksonville down. He is the congressman of uh, Daytona Beach. Uh, Michael Waltz, thank you so much for rejoining us. It was good to see you uh, the other day. Your guy has to win Florida. Your district is 12, 13 percent Hispanic. How does he get the Hispanic vote? How does he get the increasing Cuban vote in Miami? Well, I can tell you he's doing very well uh, with the Cuban vote and the Venezuelan vote for one simple reason. The word socialism doesn't doesn't ring too well uh, with with that part of the Hispanic vote. Uh, These are people who have suffered personally, uh, who have lost family members or still have family members suffering in Cuba, in Venezuela, under the Maduro regime and under the remnants of the Castro regime. And the move by the progressive left uh, to actively say and advocate socialist policies is really driving Hispanics uh, towards the president and towards the Republican Party. Well said. You've stated your case. Do you see any indication that Mr. Biden of Delaware uh, has decided to support the far left of the liberals on that matter, or is he running more centrist? Well, I think he's been kind of all over the place, uh, to be honest with you. At some point, he was for the Green New Deal. It's on his website. Then in the debate, he says it's not his plan. Uh, his vice president certainly has pounded the table for Medicare for all. Uh, he brought in the progressive left into his working groups for health care. Uh, Look, government-run health care is not the solution. Uh, Look at the problems with the VA, which I hope we'll talk about, uh, which runs from the government 1,200 hospitals and clinics and yet still is not serving our veterans. That's the best example of where the left wants to go. And and I absolutely do think that will dominate Biden's policies. I'm sure that you want a debate in Miami just for bragging points for Florida and all that. The governor, no doubt, wants a debate in Miami as well. How do we do a debate in Miami that fits the realities of one candidate healthy and the other one rather ill? Well, the typical course of of the virus and the quarantine uh, should be done uh, by that debate in another 10 days. Uh, The president is looking much better. Uh, And I think at that point, uh, we'll be able to have the debate. They'll stay socially distanced. Their teams will stay uh, we'll, we'll stay apart and stay distance as well. Very few people are going to be allowed into the room. But I think that debate is important for people to hear. And it's important per our earlier point on where the left wants to go in terms of what it calls democratic socialism to have that in Miami in the midst of people whose relatives, family members, and even themselves have suffered. Uh, there is a huge refugee population, a Venezuelan population, that is uh, that has been brutalized by the uh, by the Maduro regime in Venezuela, and uh, and I think that's a debate that needs to be had and a great place to have it. Congressman, I think we can anticipate one of the questions that will be asked next week, and I do wonder. I'd love to hear what your response to this question would be. If someone poses the question, if the president can't keep the White House safe from COVID nineteen, how does he protect the country? 
What is the answer to that, Congressman? Well, look, I think the president has kept the White House safe for the, for an extraordinary amount of time in this year. I've personally been in and out uh, a number of times on and off of Air Force One. Uh, and look, at the end of the day, no one said that this virus would never spread. Uh, the goal was to flatten the curve, to get a hospital system that could, to buy our hospital system time to handle it and not become completely overwhelmed while we march towards therapeutics and a vaccine. Uh, so if those were our goals, which we, have to, which we have to keep an eye on, I think we have largely hit those. Meanwhile, I do think Biden needs to be held accountable for, uh, for not wanting a shutdown from uh, China, for not wanting a shutdown from Europe, for calling those policies uh, xenophobic, and for himself and his advisors early on uh, not advocating for some of the stronger policies that the president put in place. Congressman, so, I think there's a lot of spin going on here in terms of what he would have done had he be president. And again, that's what debates are for and that's what's going to come out. Congressman, just real quick, do you think that President Trump has handled the own virus in his cabinet for himself well, given the fact that he's currently uh, displaying himself not wearing a mask and going for what some people have called a joyride in front of his supporters uh, with Secret Service members in the same yeah. car? Yeah, look, so there's, there's a big difference when you have the luxury of just being a candidate versus when you have to govern and when you have to lead, and you have to lead with agency and cabinet uh, heads that have to lead the Defense Department, the State Department, and others, uh, and, and other critical departments. You have to be out there. You have to find ways to walk and chew gum. And I think that's been the president's message all along, is we cannot go to a 100% shutdown. It's just, it's just not a responsible policy. We were talking about veterans a moment ago you know, we're seeing a 20 to 30 percent spike in veteran suicides just in the last year uh, because of the isolations that are, are getting put in place by uh, mandatory shutdown. So I think the president's message is we have to find ways to safely do both. We have to find he has yeah. to govern and to lead. Uh, and and uh, I think that's what he's been trying to do. Congressman, fantastic to have you on the program today. Hopefully we can have you back soon. Thanks for giving us your time. Congressman Michael Waltz there, joining us on the latest. Waking up after sleeping for the last four months or so, Peter Chir, Academy Securities Head of Macro Strategy. Peter, I know you've been paying attention. Don't worry. I'm just joking. Let's start with this bond market and treasuries in the action of the last 24 hours. Peter, in your view, was it the data, the ISM, better, upside surprise? Was it the president's health? seemingly, according to his doctors, on the road to recovery? Or was it the polls and the polls this morning as well? I think the polls are certainly helping because they're pushing us towards stimulus. And I think the reality is no matter who wins, we are going to see stimulus. We're going to see more, quote unquote, Band-Aid stimulus like we're seeing where they're trying to make people whole. But the market's starting to price in that we're going to see infrastructure <clears> stimulus. We're going to see real spending. That is going to drop a lot more bonds into the bond market. It's already been having some trouble digesting bonds for the past month in the Treasury market. So I think you see the 10-year go to at least 1%, maybe one and a quarter percent. I'm looking, Peter, at the failure of two yield rallies since March. In the land of point and figure, it's called a double pull high top. It's really an ugly uh, thing. We go up and yield, and then we go down. And then we go up and yield, and we go down again. What does that signal to you? 
I think that we've kind of hit the limits of where we can get into terms of lower yields. So that's another reason higher yields. Also, when we had that stock market volatility recently and we are down on stocks, treasuries barely budged. Yet another negative sign that it's not going to take much to push yields higher. And then finally, I know um, the MOVE index, which is an index that really looks at implied volatility in the treasury market. I know it's a little bit wonky, but it's been very, very low, telling me that people haven't been hedging any sort of interest rate risk. So again, another reason I think we're susceptible to a fairly rapid move to one to one and a quarter percent on the 10 year. Peter, that sounds like a lot given the stasis we've seen in the bond market recently. Will that get the Fed's attention? I don't think so. I, you know, I think above one percent they start paying attention and then they maybe start doing things to ensure that we don't get above one and a quarter. But I do think if you look at the Fed's messaging for the past month or two, they would not be unhappy to see slightly higher yields and a steeper curve, right? I think the Fed has done a much, much better job than the ECB trying to ensure that banks can make some money, right? We are not going to negative yields. I hate negative yields. I think they're the worst thing possible for the economy. So we're not going to get negative yields. I think the Fed actually wants to see a steeper yield curve. And bizarrely enough, it gets very, very circular, but they talk about inflation yeah. expectations, that's a calculation from that anyway. So it suits their agenda. Well, Peter, tell that to the Cleveland Fed. Loretta Mester out yesterday saying, quote, I can imagine wanting to shift to longer term treasuries as we did during the Great Recession. How do you frame that one? I think they're going to be very careful not to let it get above one and a quarter percent. So as we start seeing higher yields or moderately higher yields, I think first the Fed will step up buying more treasuries. Then we'll go back hearing a little bit more about yield curve control. And I think we are stuck in this world. We potentially see real negative yields in the U.S., you know, very negative. And that's one reason I remain bearish on the dollar is any inflation which would normally express itself in higher yields is going to be tamped down by the Fed. And that money is going to have to find itself somewhere else. So it's going to express itself in dollar weakness. So inflation is going to be dollar weakness, not higher yields because of the Fed. Does it matter to you, Peter, as a market guy, that the economists are partitioning inflation among goods and services? Goods, inflation, maybe. Service sector looks like substantial disinflation. Does that stuff matter to you? It does a little bit, but I think over the long term, we will see an equalization. I do think if we get this infrastructure spending for the first time in a long, long time, we might see some real competition to hire mid-level type employees, people who can manage plants, people who can manage production facilities. And that could actually create wage inflation, which has been really lacking for the last 10 years. So given the fact that you do think that bonds will sell off, do you think that it is inconsistent for equities to continue to rally in tandem? Or do you think that they will continue uh, their rush upward based on this extra support fiscally, as well as an improving economy with the end of the pandemic? You know, one thing I'll say, and it's probably going to sound crazy, but I actually like dividend stocks. And dividend stocks would normally do poorly as yields are rising. But dividend stocks did not respond at all for the past two months to low yields. So I think you're going to see a little bit of a normalization, almost what I'm calling a reversal trade. I would have called it a reopening trade a couple months ago, but we've moved so far beyond that. I think it's a reversal trade. I do think big tech is particularly susceptible Depending on who wins, they may be a target for paying a lot of the bills. So I'd be a little bit more nervous there. I continue to like the performance that we've seen in reopening. I really like the fact that the Russell 2000 has been doing well of late. So I think we could see a real strong, smaller company domestic focused rally for the next two months as the spending comes Peter, online. let's separate these issues out because we're starting to conflate two different issues, yep. I think. There are events that squeeze positions and there are events that drive durable change. Now, the thing that people are worried about going into November is that we don't have a result. The thing that squeezes positions is that we do have one. 
That's the somebody. The who, that is what drives durable change. Now, if somebody wins, i.e. Biden, you get a democratic sweep, that will squeeze positions. I would argue the other side as well. If you've got a red wave, that would squeeze positions too. But what drives durable change is that's the person, the policy. Are we conflating the two issues at the moment? I think a little bit, but I think when you really look beyond the messaging, what's going to be most important to me is will we get fiscal stimulus? Will we get infrastructure spending? Will we try and rebuild a manufacturing base? And to me, the messaging from both sides is actually very similar. So if I think about what's going to be the most important next year is do we drive fiscal stimulus? I think the answer is yes, regardless of who wins. How we pay for it might shift a little bit, but that's kind of why I'm very optimistic. And I suspect that at the end of 2021, we will have a better job situation in the U.S. than we had at the start of 2020. Peter Chir, great catch up, sir. As always, Peter Chir, Academy Securities Head of Macro Strategy. Got to be in the market to play in the market, and Robert Dahl of Nuveen has done that for years. Bob Dahl joins us uh, this morning. Bob, how do you stay in a market here with all this uncertainty? You recognize that the underlying economic fundamentals and therefore earnings, we're in a reflationary period. You, you all just summed it up very well in the last. Few we do minutes. okay, Bob. Uh, you're doing great. You're doing great. You see, we're about to get amazing third quarter GDP. I know that's history. Good third quarter earnings. Reasonable outlook for the fourth quarter fiscal policy package or not. We're seeing precious metals. We're seeing industrial commodities moving up. We're obviously the stock market cyclicals are beginning to do do a little bit better, and even the bond market is waking up to say inflation is not going to be zero forever. What do you make of the relative story right now, Bob, between Europe and the United States? Three months ago, the happy talk around Europe was almost deafening. And now you don't hear much of it anymore. And the momentum, relatively speaking, is not in Europe right now. It's in the U.S., Bob. No question about it. Our economy uh, came back faster because our policy mix was gargantuan and fast. I mean, you, you can't find another period in history monetary and fiscal policy was this quick and this aggressive, and that has buoyed our economy and get it, got us out of what could have gotten to be a longer and deeper recession when we shut the economy off. And that's why the U.S. is doing well. So I sense where you want to be, the United States over potentially Europe. Let's talk about where in the United States you'd like to be. Yesterday, we saw that internal rotation that the likes of JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs and others are talking about, that move to the cyclical parts of the equity market. Bob, why do you think we can have a sustainable move there and not just a position squeeze? Well, there is some position squeezing going on, no question. I think it's not an either or. I think it's a both and. If you've been successful in equities, you've had uh, you know technology and healthcare and uh, not many small stocks and not many cyclicals until the last uh, few weeks. Now it's a both end. We had the run, for example, in financials just uh, yesterday. Today it might be the tech stocks coming on again. We've had this rotation. With an upward trend, that's going to continue. I like some of the consumer cyclical names, the best buys, lows, targets, even the, some of the home builders. Uh, I'm not giving up on health care. Uh, I think there, 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 there are good news there, regardless of uh, who gets selected. The stocks are not expensive. So they're the places I, w- I would camp out. Where's the cash flow? Can you reinvest it for some growth? And uh, are you doing well and, and, and making uh, money and cash flow in an environment that is uh, post-coronavirus. 
Bob, the most read story on the Bloomberg yesterday had to do with Wall Street analysts saying that a Biden win could be a bull case for U.S. equities. There was a lot of pushback, people saying it's just people going with their political beliefs. But, Bob, do you adhere to this narrative that a Democrat sweep, both of the, of the Senate, the House and the presidency, would be positive for markets? Probably initially, yes, because we will get a fiscal policy spending uh, that will buoy the economy further, probably more than a re-election of uh, Donald Trump, particularly if it's a, a mixed Congress in that sense. Longer term, you know, if you're going to have tax increases, you're going to have re-regulation. That's not great for the market. So there could be this whiff in the air of the, the positive reflationary trade, as I mentioned, getting uh, goosed a bit from uh, some fiscal policy spending. And then people will uh, wake up and say, mm, not so fast. Well, and this has to do particularly with tech stocks, big tech stocks, because not only do you have an increasing antitrust uh, sentiment that is growing, certainly among the Democratic Party in Washington, D.C., but as you said, the talk tax changes uh, that Joe Biden would implement would disproportionately hit big tech companies, according to analysis by Bank of America. Would you go underweight tech in a Democrat sweep? I wouldn't go underweight. I would probably have less in a Democrat suite than I would if, if the president is uh, reelected. Re but I wouldn't go underweight. The underlying growth is just so powerful. COVID was a positive for uh, the tech sector. Look, we're going to have, under either administration, continued queries of those companies. And the, look, the camel's nose under the tent. Uh, the, the government wants more money from these companies, and, and that will hurt the multiples. I'm not sure it's going to hurt the earnings. Hey, Bob, great to catch up, sir. Don't leave it so long next All time. The Bob Dole there. Nuveen, Chief Equity Strategist. Thank you very much. Right now is something very spiritual. She is Carla Harris out of Jacksonville, who never said no. Starting with the Radcliffe Choral Society, she carved out a singing, a legit singing and music career, including wonderful appearances at Carnegie Hall. And in the meantime, worked for Morgan Stanley. She is now vice chairman and senior, senior client advisor. We're thrilled that Ms. Harris could join us uh, this morning on things Wall Street, but also things of this society in America right now. Carla, is the spirit that got you out of Jacksonville to Radcliffe, is it still there? I would have to say it's very much still here and alive and kicking, Tom. How are you this morning? We're very good. Wonderful to have you uh, with us. I'd like you to interpret for us what Wall Street can do to allow a nation to heal and move forward. Yes, I'll tell you, one of the things that Wall Street can do as providers of capital is to make sure that those who don't have equal access to capital get that access. And that's one of the things we've done at Morgan Stanley. As you know, Tom, we started a multicultural innovation lab four years ago. And I'm so excited today because it's our demo day. So that's the big coming out day where our companies, the nine companies that have been in the well, lab, will be, will be shown to investors. And we know that here through the acumen of Betsy Grasick looking at banking. And of course, then there's Ellen Zentner, who's been killing it as well in yeah. economics. Carla Harris, I want to know what we need to do to get the mathiness of your degree in economics from a Harvard. How do we get women? How do we get minorities engaged in the joys of microeconomics? Well, I'll tell you, a lot of it is access to education, as you know, and then access to opportunities. And the entrepreneurs that are out there, it's around access to capital, because as you know, women get less than 
of traditional VC dollars and people of color get less than 2% or 1%, depending on your source. So I think that what we can do is to make sure that they know where the capital is and give them a fair shot. And in many cases, these entrepreneurs have already been de-risked by the time we even see them because they've had such a much tougher journey. Carla Harris, it's 2020. Why have we been so bad at actually providing that, you know, that capital to people that need it? And will 2020 really be a a turning point for this? Yeah, if I want to be constructive, I'll tell you that the reason that we've been bad at it is that people like to lean on the excuse that they can't find any. But that's one of the things that we've been trying to fix through our podcast, Access and Opportunity, is to highlight some of these great entrepreneurs and to highlight those who've already invested. Because the more you put data out there and the more you elevate the conversation, I think the more people will start to say, wait, there really is something there. And the companies that we brought into our lab have gone on to raise over $30 million after they've been in the lab which means we have been successful in raising the level of visibility. And today we have over $54 billion that will be represented among the investors that have come to our virtual demo day. Um, Carla Harris, I remember speaking many years ago, actually, to Christine Lagarde, and she would go around when she was at the IMF speaking to heads of state who said, I would love to find a woman to fill that job as finance minister, as environment minister, but they're just not there. And she would show up, literally, and have a list and say, well, here, I have a list of names that you could look at. How do we incentivize people on Wall Street to do more? Does it have to be, does, does diversity have to be part of their pay package? Well, I think it I think it has to be a part of your intent and your objections. No, no objectives. No question about it, because if you want to avail yourself of the best talent, you have to avail yourself of all the talent that's in the marketplace. And that's really the hallmark of good leadership. So I think you have to be intentional about making sure Mm -hmm. you have diverse thinking at the table or you're going to have a gap in your go to market strategy and expose yourself to competition in a way that you never have before, especially going forward with millennials and Zers really caring about this. Uh, Ms. Harris, we are learning so much in this pandemic, all of us. It's been actually really humbling, just as one stupid thing. I'm using a lot less paper than I did before this pandemic. Mm-hmm. There's serious things that are out there, and I would suggest the major constraint now, as it's been for decades, is the child care in this nation. It's a major constraint. Jamie Dimon's talked about it at J.P. Morgan. I'm sure James Gorman has at Morgan Stanley as well. How do we get to a child care program that mimics selected other developed nations? Well, I'll tell you, many corporations, including my own, have created programs for, for working parents so that they will have places to, to keep their kids or they'll have people that are available in emergencies. And I, I frankly think on the other side of COVID-19, you're going to see more and more companies think about a way that they can be innovative around child care. So you bring up a very good point, Tom. Um, uh, Carla Harris, from where I'm sitting, which is not in the U.S., it's really quite, you know, difficult to see a United States that's so divided ahead of the election on all sorts of fronts. What's the prescription for going forward? Well, you know, I, I am certainly a glass half full as uh, kind of girl, as you know, and I do believe that on the other side of this global pandemic, we will find a way to come together. I think that's one of the reasons, frankly, if you really want to get spiritual about it, this has descended upon us to really make us focus on the fact that we're all interdependent. 
and we all need each other at the end of the day. And this is the first time in my lifetime and probably in yours that this has been a common experience. And I'm hopeful that because it's been a common experience, we will come together and find a common solution. And you're right, it's hurtful to see the divide. But I think, you know, on the other side of this, we'll find a way to get together. How will it reshape Wall Street? How will it reshape how we work from home or not? What do you see as as a lasting legacy of COVID-19? I think every company will have to rethink its its real estate portfolio, how they work, um, how efficient people can, can be with the right kind of technology. I think companies are seeing that for the first time. So I think every company across every industry is sort of rethinking what do we need to look like? What's our optimal size? You know, how can we enable people to be even more productive and more importantly, more innovative if they're not in the same space? And the big question is how do you create and drive culture when you aren't under the same roof? That's the big question. So, uh, Carla, what's a question you get the most by clients of Morgan Stanley? What do they want to know about what kind of economy world building, what kind of social cohesion will be post-2020? Well, the biggest question that, that I've gotten, especially as a public speaker, is how do you lead when you're not in the same space? You know, how do you drive productivity? How do you keep people comfortable and focused and, and, and really driving in the same direction and maximize your productivity? And frankly, what I've been saying to leaders, especially when we went into this shelter-in-place protocol, there's three things that you must do. Number one, you must be visible. Number two, you must be transparent about what you know and what you don't know, and more importantly, when you know it. And number three, you must be empathetic. And and that will allow you to create some stability and some certainty when people are craving stability and certainty and you're not in the same place. And if you are authentic, which is number one, then they are apt to follow you into this uncertain environment. But the, the pandemic will also hurt women uh, more than than men. It will hurt, you know, uh, BAME people more than whites. How do we address this? How, how do we rebalance this? Well, I have to tell you, I am not of the mind that it necessarily will put people at a disadvantage, women and people of color, because this is the first time in many ways that there's a level playing field. It used to be if you're in the same place, you know, maybe someone shared they went to the same school or they golfed together and you might have been intimidated by approaching a leader because you saw them talking to someone else and you said, well, I don't share uh, playing golf or I don't share having gone to that school. But now everybody has to communicate in this way. So there is a level playing field. And so now it's really about your own initiative to reach out to someone and say, hey, Tom, I wanted to have a conversation with you pre-COVID, can you give me 10 minutes on a Zoom? I'd like to walk through three or four things with you and talk about my career. So now you can be very focused, very intentional, and you can connect in the same way that everyone else is connecting. So I actually think this has created a bit of a level playing field, but your initiative must drive the connection, no question. The ever-optimist Carla Harris, thank you so much for joining us today. Morgan Stanley, Vice Chair and Senior Client Advisor. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.